Well, look, this is going to be our last week of Ezekiel. So we've, we've split it into two weeks. And whether we deal with this week or last week or any portion of the book, I want to check in with my typical open-ended, awful question and see what Ezekiel is doing for you. Would you say more about the hope that you see? I'm sorry. Would you say more about the hope you feel like the second part is giving? Well, saying, you know, God is going to straighten things out and Jerusalem will become great again. But in the first part, he says, you know, <laughs> things are not going to be <laughs> things are not going to be well. But it's the first one that really says there is hope. Mm. And he's he's not condemning all people. He's saying individually you can be redeemed. Yeah. And and I think that's kind of important. Would you would you tell me what that means to you? Oh, that means that. Um, Does it mean that I personally can find salvation or I can find hope? That, that God is going to judge each one of us and not judge us all the same and punish it all the same. And it makes the relationship more personal. Mm. There was a little piece that, that I I highlighted it in that healing is left to us too. We have the position, the, the power to to make some of our own changes when we recognize that we've gone the wrong way. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not left just to the power of a super being. Mm. Rather, uh, we too have yes. because it was an individual responsibility yes. that we had to recognize right. you are part of mm. and, um, and, that you, and, that I, and that you're accepting the reality of your situation so. and I love the question uh, when have you consciously redirected your life after mm. the little home <laughs> Do you are you doing it now? It's it, that was just yeah. hmm. Well, you know that it was yesterday. <laughs> but but I thought that was very special. Just touching to me. Yeah. Thank you. I kind of fast forward to like 1949. I kept doing that too. Would you say more about that? Well, yes. I think that uh, when I read this, this this feels like the the um, and I'm not saying it's unfounded. Don't misunderstand me. But the justification for for the Jews, the uh, I always say this wrong. Uh, diaspora. 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 I'm going to say it wrong. You're all right. Times, Mike, until it finally sticks. The diaspora um, finally made it back to Israel for good. 
Okay. Somewhat, right? I mean, I think there's well, more... I mean, you know, for good's a long time. But, um, I mean, the bottom line is, is um, they've, they have taken much of what I've read here and they have created much of what God said. Ezekiel says God said to create in Israel. At a tragic cost, right? <laughs> and uh, very safe to say there are many more Jewish people living outside of Israel than there are within. And those living within Israel, I'm going to make a blanket statement, uh, largely agnostic or atheistic. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, you can, you can be that way and still see this... Of course, as a cultural promise. As a cultural promise, yes, mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. They're Jew- I have have very close Jewish, and this is just a couple, but they take that position. It's, it's cultural, yeah. but it's, it's, not, it's not any part of their life or their practice or... Um, it's, it's quite an interesting combination. I don't quite understand it. But I would tell you, I think most American Christians uh-huh. are actually similarly Similar, agnostic somewhere, or atheistic yeah. in the middle of their Christian practices. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, you're, I think you're right. Absolutely. It's changing now. Uh-huh. I think that's changing. The evidence is that Sunday is no longer a sacrosanct day for, you know, sports schedules or work schedules. Uh, it's no longer like you have to belong to a church in order to get a promotion. That was the case 50 years ago, right? Um, so I think it's an interesting bit. Yeah, yeah, no. And I, I remember as old as I am, when you fill out work applications, if I'm not mistaken, sometimes there'd be questions, uh, there'd be a question about religion, uh, your church, your church affiliation. Are they still there? They can be, depending on the job, right? Absolutely. I mean, hospitals ask you that too, so they can assign you the proper chaplain. Yes, yes. I want to come back to what what we were talking about. So, current day Israel, okay, uh, the West Bank is, is populated by Muslims. Mm. In general. Muslims and Palestinian Orthodox Christians. Okay. The question, uh, where, are they, were they originally the, also Judeans or do they? Yeah, it's really great you said else? that. Judean, remember, is a geography. Right. And the word Jew in the Bible is actually very ambiguous. It might mean people who live in Judea. It might be religious Jews as we usually map that. So there's a lot of ambiguity, whereas we usually approach it with a singularity. So I think actually to say all the people in Israel are Judeans would be very biblically appropriate. Because in that region you have religious Jews, you have cultural Jews, you have atheists, you have Christians. The Baha'i faith is centered there as well, right? So you've actually kind of got a lot of... Baha'i is um, a more of a recent innovation in religion that has eight ways to heaven, uh, essentially. Is it founded on... Is it, is it Christian founded or is it... No, 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 no. no. It, it's, nothing founded. Well, it includes everybody, really. <laughs> so there's like the big five. There's... You, you, the, the ways of faith are like Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, uh, Jewish, uh, Hindu, uh, Sikh, um, 
I forget the other one, and then other prophets is number eight. So it's very similar to the Unitarian Universalist approach of there's many, many ways, right? But the, they, it's not a huge world religion, but it is there. It's headquartered in, in, in Haifa, uh, right by Mount Carmel, actually. But the Palestinians, there may be a few, but in general, not Jews. Oh, uh, just, yeah, very, very fair to say that. And what's really interesting, too, is you've got all different kinds of ethnicities there, too, because it's really easy to say, uh, hey, look, uh, there's Jewish people and there's non-Jewish people, but most of us don't realize that there's a very strong division even in the nation of Israel, regardless of your religious preferences, as to your descent. So most of you know there's two major groups of Jews, the Ashkenazi and the uh, Sephardim, right? And uh, actually, it's very socially advantageous in Israel to be Ashkenazi. Uh, they look down on the Sephardic Jews as being science, sort of well, bumpkins. And uh, <laughs> is that is that because in general the Ashkenazis came from Eastern Europe and they came and they actually settled after 1949. More of them came from that area versus the other way. Yeah, no, it goes the other way around. The Ashkenazi come from the West, the Sephardic come from the East. Oh, well, well, and the Sephardic, are you saying which one is the preference? The Ashkenazi sort of have this higher status in Israel. They come from the Iberian Peninsula area? Iberian Peninsula, France, Germany, and then you get the German divide and you get the Sephardic who come from Russia, Poland, etc. And, you know, it's really interesting, actually, the synagogues have some similarities, but Sephardic synagogues are laid out differently than Ashkenazi synagogues. I'll just give you an example, because I, I, I actually find this to be really some neat geometry. You know, in your, in your synagogues are shaped like churches, to be honest, because, um, well, the Reformation of Judaism was based on churches. <laughs> so there's hymns and there's a sermon, and up here, where we would put our tabernacle, is the ark that holds the Torah, right? Well, if you go into the Sephardic synagogue, there's a platform here in the middle of the pews. They don't have that in the Ashkenazi. And uh, there's somebody who gets up here called... Um, oh, man, it's the... I'm going to say this wrong. I'm trying to remember if the bima is the person in the platform. I, I, my brain used to work really well. It's still early. It's the bima. The bima is the platform, and this man is the chazan who gets up and, and chants. He's sort of like the, I don't want to say the cantor, but he'll chant most of the service. And when the Torah is read, they bring it up on the bima, like we bring the gospel out to the middle of the people. Isn't that interesting to see? Yeah. Um, did they get that from the church? Maybe, or maybe we got it from them. I mean, it's kind of like chicken cacciatore here. But, but even the, the things are different, you know? And actually, the Sephardic are more pronounced with the way that they do this while praying. Mm-hmm. And again, it's completely different descent. The Sephardic Jews could be more Slavic than, um, you know, French, German, Spanish. And look, in Europe, there's 
anti-Slavism as well. You know, I mean, it's not like European history says we're all Europeans. That's great. There's lots of this discrimination going on. And, and there actually is a pretty large Sephardic population in Israel, like 40% now. And it's growing because Sephardic Jews have more kids. <laughs> No, like Polish are, Catholics do. Are they Orthodox as well as... All over the map. And again, it's funny, there's different Orthodoxies because the synagogues even look different. You, and, and the clothes can be very different. We usually think, ah, uh, like Orthodox Jewish people, that's like big beards and, yeah. and black and black hats. That actually comes from the Polish nobility of the 1800s. So it's not like Jewish people always dress like that. If that's Polish, then that would be Sephardic. And it's a Sephardic influence over even Ashkenazi, though. That, the uniforms sort of won the day. Uniforms are funny things, right? Like, yeah. you know, the necktie came to us from Croatian military attire. It's not like people in France and Germany wore neckties. That came from their Croatian military. It's super strange, right? The Hungarian military, people wore panther skins when they were officers. Thank God we don't do that. Not enough panthers on the planet. Okay, um, all that stuff is really bizarre, you know, and, and, it, and it, we, we often think, aha, the necktie is very old, or it's British, or it's whatever, and, and we just don't know. And the same thing with Judaism today, what's interesting, you know, the diaspora has come back, but it's not like people are viewed with equality in Israel. There's just sort of like this, you know, again, Ashkenazi think of Sephardic, this is going to sound awful when I say this, it's very presumptive of me, but they look down upon Sephardic Judaism, ethnically, the way they practice, etc. So it's not like, yay, we're all back together and we're all happy. It's like... You bumpkins, we have to share this place with you. And hey, think about some of our own religious stereotyping. If you're, pro if you're Protestant and you see a Mormon family with 12 kids, I mean, Protestants have two, right? And here's a Catholic family with 14 children. It's like, why are you having so many kids? How about some birth control? And um, same thing. <laughs> Because they have a social welfare system, right? So are these people gaming the system? I mean, listen, this... We're not unique in our ability to, to, to be uh, prejudicial, you know. So it's an interesting thing to think about whether or not the nation of Israel does indeed embody this unification that Ezekiel has in mind. Yes, sir? Well, if, if he had that in mind, then the temple would have been rebuilt, but the temple has, has not been rebuilt. But you see why the temple can't be rebuilt. Do you know why the temple can't be rebuilt? Today. Yeah. Well, there's a mosque up there. There's a mosque that happens to be honestly like one of the oldest and the most beautiful buildings in the entire world. Um, and the temple can't be anywhere but there. It has to be there. During the um, uh, election campaign uh, in Israel, Bibi Netanyahu said he proposed building a third temple up there. Yeah, it's, you know, the reason that's crazy is rabbinic Judaism is not interested in sacrificing animals anymore. It's not. So that's like this play. So if you're wondering, hey, there's all this stuff in Judaism about sacrificing animals. What do they do? Not that. They believe that reading about it is as good as doing it. <laughs> because you can't do it when there's no temple. 
And if a Messiah ever comes, the Messiah brings a new temple from heaven. Most Jewish people accept this. Most Jewish people are not itching to rebuild some kind of temple. Um, what's interesting, though, I don't know if you... It's kind of hard to catch this. The, the, the temple Ezekiel has in mind that he describes yeah. is massive. It is gigantic. So just to give you an idea, Solomon's temple was like a city block, smaller. Smaller than a city block. Ezekiel's temple would have fit five football fields. Now Herod's temple, that one behind you, fit like three and a half football fields. So he's actually really, really big. And, and if you look at the picture, you'll see Ezekiel's temple looks a little different. There's actually would be three buildings in it. Um, if you don't mind, I'll just, I'll just sort of point to this diagram here. This is a, a scale replica of what Herod the Great built, uh, which was the eighth wonder of the ancient world, tr truly. I'm not making that up, eighth, eighth wonder of the world. So you could fit three and a half football fields in there, and this is what was called the court of the Gentiles. Really what it was is the Acropolis. And the Acropolis, as the name implies, is always the high city. As it was in Athens, there's a temple, but this is where all the shopping occurred. This was the Mall of the Americas. It was very big. Um, Ezekiel had that, and by the way, Gentiles could go everywhere in here, but you had to be Jewish to get in that door. You see it? And if you went in there as a Gentile, you'd get killed. And that was accepted. Like you just did, that was profane. You couldn't do that. Uh, women and men could go into this court. Men could go into this court. Priests only could go in there. And of course, there's smaller rooms in there depending on the day of the year, right? Well, Ezekiel's got something like this in mind. A huge court of the Gentiles. So that Everybody can be included. And this is where I would tell you, I think the nation of Israel, as it's being practiced, is completely off from this idea. The idea is to bring the nations in, not keep them out. Uh, look, there's walls to protect the sanctity, but they're not being built around Bethlehem. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The walls are there actually to protect the Gentiles from doing something out of ignorance. They're not meant to make the Gentiles a second-class people like the wall around Bethlehem does. It, was this a, a Gentile... A, did, did, did a Jew have to have a, I'll call it a Jewish succession? Or could a Gentile convert to Judaism? Gentiles can, yeah, Gentiles absolutely could convert to, Gentile, to, to Judaism. Here's the easiest way to, do you know the easiest way to tell if somebody's Jewish? You lift up their robe. Oh, well, as <laughs> if they're a male. Well, okay, so, I mean, what we, what we don't realize is in general, since male are the free people property holders, 
religion is largely male. I mean, con consider Islam today. You see those pictures of people going to the mosque. There's no women in there. They're not allowed in the same room as men. Women are equal under, under Islamic rule, separate but equal. Well, that's the way it used to be in Jewish temples. That's the way it still is in some Christian denominations. And yes. if you're Orthodox Jewish, you cannot sit with your husband in the synagogue. There's like a gallery when you might be able to peek at what the men do. You're all equal. It's just that you're separate. <laughs> now, this, this is, goes against the grain of our American sensibilities, hopefully so, right? Because we know separate but equal is not equal. <laughs> we, we, I mean, we kind of accept that as Americans. What we don't accept is that women can be clergy. <laughs> Because they're equal, they're just separate. I mean, anyway, it's funny how we do this, right? But, but evangelicals, at least women can sit in church together, and at least women can teach Sunday school. If it's, to girls, <laughs> if it's well, to, to boys, you can teach Sunday school to children. And we, this is the way we use women up, actually, is we, we say that's what they can do. Well, anyway. I'm saying too much. Look how I'm recording this. But I do want to say, John, I think, I, I think there's really something interesting to, to question whether or not this nation of Israel is living into what Ezekiel has in mind. Uh, and, 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 I would, and the other prophets, too. And the other prophets, too. And I would tell you no. Again, the, the goal of, of what you read here, I think, is to say, look, Jerusalem is like a city on the hill that invites people to God not bars them away, invites. So, so, so think through, and look, I'm, I don't want to sound all political here, so I'm not, you know, I'm not as much of a firebrand as it, as it sound like, but when you wall off a whole group of people and they don't have access to electricity or sanitation or voting rights or markets or education, and you say, well, you know, we're just doing that so that we know who lives where, right? Uh, I, I, I don't think you can say in any way that that is living into this vision. Again, that's what the wall in Bethlehem does. And you can see it. You can physically see Bethlehem looks like Appalachia. Well, why don't those people throw their trash away? Because no one picks it up. The Israeli government controls sanitation and they don't drive trucks in there. Oh. Now, maybe those people, those people don't have the same standards. You see, once we start using those people, I don't think we're living into this vision. Does that, I, I hope this makes sense. And I, I just wonder, if you will, if, if you can go back where they came from. Were they Judeans who were who were converted, whether they wanted to or not, to um, Islam? Uh, You're talking about many, our, many, our, many our current day Palestinians? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you hear Palestinians who have been on the land for 300 years, but before that. In general, yes, right? I mean, so, so um, and, and in general, yes. The, these are people who have lived in the land a long time, and, you know, uh, after 
the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, Islam spread really quickly, including to this area. Boy, the Crusades made Christianity look really, really bad. Um, but some Christian people stayed. I mean, there were. And, and interestingly, at the end of the Crusades, Saladin didn't kill the Christians or make them leave. He just said, if you're going to fight, then I'll fight you. But if you want to live in peace, you can live here. <laughs> he wasn't punitive. That's the interesting thing, right? So Christian and Jewish people resumed living in peace with Islam at the end of the Crusades. So there's always been these little little pockets. When did, when did the top, when did the uh, top of the, of the mountain here in Jerusalem become a mosque? Oh, they built that mosque in um, 670, something oh, like wow. that. But you've got to remember that the temple, that, that temple you it's see, gone. was gone. ruined in the year 70. There was nothing really there for 600 oh, years. Walls, which they're not going to be able to Well, no, the walls there were gone too. The only thing left was one of the retaining walls. Oh, the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall is a retaining wall. Oh, that's the only one that's left out of the four walls. In Basically, it. yeah. It, you know, a lot of that's ruined. Now, that temple platform uh, seems to still be there and that's where the Dome of the Rock is. So some people think the Dome of the Rock's built over the stone on which Avram went to sacrifice Yitzhak. That's mm -hmm. called Mount Moriah. Some people think that, but you know, Jewish folk don't really walk around up there because you, if you walk on that spot, God will kill you. So, so you, and you don't know where it is, so you shouldn't go walk around up there. But we, but that's where the temple was at one time. That's the belief. 70. Yeah, that's the belief. No, no, you're good. I mean, it's is good history to know, and this influences... Again, now, Ezekiel's temple has never been built. Never. And it's not there. I mean, again, that is a big place. But again, please notice what you don't see in the dimensions that I'm trying to tell you is how much access there is for Gentiles. Solomon's temple had very little court of the Gentiles, like tiny. This is, again, football fields big. Yes, sir. After the Jews returned to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the second temple, mm -hmm. did any of Ezekiel's um, foretelling uh, of people coming together happen? Well, what's interesting, and this is where you can read Ezra and Nehemiah, when the Jews come back, a group of the Jews. I mean, keep in mind, the people who lived there were also Jewish. Right. Right. They just weren't the best and brightest, so they got left. Right. Yeah. Uh, they'd been running Judaism, as far as they knew, and then come, here come all these educated people telling them they're doing it all wrong, and that they're second-class citizens in their own religion. Right. Imagine that going over well. Yeah. Then they come and say, if you've married somebody who's not one of our people, put them outside the walls along with any kids you've had with them. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah say. Because foreign people will corrupt your religion. So I didn't think that's this beautiful vision of inclusion. Now, there's a developmental reason for this. When we have children, we worry a lot about their friends. Because we realize our friends, our kids' friends can be very strong, positive or negative influences. And when our children are not mature, we have this strong thought that I think is developmentally appropriate that, hey, 
You know, if I don't want my kids exposed to drugs or pornography or theft, I don't want my kid around other kids who do those things, right? Um, hopefully, there comes a point where we think our kids are mature enough to handle those everyday occurrences. Hopefully. <laughs> but when is that? It's not in the first grade, right? I don't want my five-year-old going to school with other children who describe pornographic movies. That happened to my five-year-old. That's child abuse, by the way. But you can't do anything about that because you're not observing it. So what do we do? Well, we, we try to, and I would tell you the number one reason we have private schools in the United States is so that we can pick our kids' friends. Anybody who tells you something different, I think, doesn't even know that's why they're putting their kids here. I have similar values with every parent here in the sense that I want my kids to be around virtue and I value education enough to spend extra money and time on it. You know, I mean, that's really what private schools do. And, and in that sense, they're, they're luxurious, but boy, forming your child is their birthright. It's no luxury. You know, I mean, it's sort of an interesting thing to think about, right? Um, so maybe developmentally, here's like, who are we going to be as Jewish people? Well, we can't have corrupting influences because we're not mature enough to figure it out. So I want to cast that positively, even though I think it's also like not good. Because what it leads to is this mentality of, hey, let's have self-imposed quarantines. So there's a difference between a ghetto, that's where you're forced to go, and a sanctuary, which you create. Is there any of the prophets that foretell the, the destruction of the second temple? No, because none of them were none of them were around. All of the prophets happened before that thing even got built. Okay, all of them. And remember that prophets are not in general foretellers. What they say is, here comes the natural consequences. And folks, you might think God is going to protect this city and you don't have to do anything. And you need to know, now this is crazy theology, isn't it? The Babylonians are the rod of the Lord. Can you imagine saying the Nazis were the rod of the Lord? God should pick better rods, don't you think? (laughs) I don't know that the prophets are claiming that's literally the truth. I think what they're trying to say, you know, if we focus on that too much, the injustice of it is, is impossible to swallow. I think what they're trying to say is, since you think everything happens for a reason, these people have been sent by God. They're, again, you can say something without it having to literally be true. Does that, does that make sense, what I'm saying? In some ways, the Third Reich was exactly what Europe earned itself. I know that's terrible. But when you take a people and belittle them and take away their economy, of course they will want vengeance. And this is what we did after the Second World War, right? Is we tried not to be punitive. We did things like the Marshall Plan, right? 
because we, uh, and this is an interesting thing when we think about a war on terror, right? Mm -hmm. We'll kill all the terrorists through drones who show up in the sky and shoot missiles at families and kill those terrorists. What is everybody else going to think? They're going to think the United States is a bunch of terrorists. <laughs> Usually people don't submit to terror. Usually they decide to get revenge. I mean, this is yeah. a hard thing. By the way, again, I know I'm sounding really political today. I don't mean to. Um, I don't remember who it was that wrote that when a people are conquered and they are able to throw off their conquerors and they conquer somebody else, they learn their conqueror's behavior and then it's redone on the, the people that they conquer. I mean, it's I think. The same thing with children. Yes. I was going to say, you can yes. dial that down to a family level, right? Most people who abuse children were abused as children. Yes. And in some ways, they should know better, but they're doing what they were like imprinted on. You well, know? You know, whether you were abused or not, how many times have you said, I remember, you said something to a child or, or to a friend, and you said, Your my father said that, yeah. my mother said that. Even though as a middle schooler, you said, I will never say that exactly. to my kids. Oh, exactly. And then you have them, and, well, it was good enough for me. <laughs> can, can I uh, ask a question? So Ezekiel says that um, when the Jews, when the, the, the uh, yeah, Jews come back from Babylon, mm -hmm. starts around 70 years after the fall of the uh, of the. David's land, land after uh, Zedekiah. Yeah, probably more like fifty years instead of seventy. But yeah, oh, yeah. But so I, I presume they don't all get together and come back at one time. People start coming back slowly. Yeah, um, there is an so. initial party. Ezra leads that party, right? Cyrus sends them back with some money to rebuild the temple. So the biggest group comes in in sort of a colony. <laughs> What I was reading, not here in another book, was that the Jews, many of the Jews that went to Babylon, to Babylon or Babylonia, mm -hmm. did quite well there. Oh, yeah. yeah. And some of them did very well there, mm -hmm. um, money-wise. Yeah, that's so, right. I mean, if these, these, maybe someone said, I'm staying here because I'm doing pretty well. Plenty or, of them did that. Or I'm, those that came back, um, how long was it before they started building the second temple? Uh, well, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they got on it pretty fast. It just, they stalled down and took them a long time. Oh. Yeah. Now, it does say in here that uh, God, the true shepherd, will still need to, a, a servant leader. Um, and it will be my servant, David. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that David's lineage will somehow be... Um, uh, brought back and and become, if not king, at least the servant of God and maybe the the head um, yeah. rabbi. I think it depends how you view it, and it, and there's all kinds of different thoughts about this, right? Um, you know, there's one way in which you sort of see the gospel writers tracing Jesus as like. Davidic lineage, but you know he wasn't related to David at all. Joseph is related to David, but Joseph's not his dad. 
And there's no genealogy for Mary. So I think it's pretty safe to assume Mary's not related. So I think like what the gospel writers have decided is that this is meant to be taken figuratively. David like. Yeah, and what is David, David like? Doing. I mean, David means beloved, and he's this person who brought a bunch of different tribes together with a common purpose. He ushered in like the Hebrew Golden Age, which lasted like 40 years. 40 years? Ish. Wow, really? Not very long. I was going to say no. <laughs> but you got to remember, and this is the other thing you said about going to Babylon Babylon and Persia is like New York City. Jerusalem is like Santa Fe, Texas. So you go from being prosperous in Santa Fe, and then you go prosperous in New York City. Boy, you're loath to go back to some Santa Fe, don't you think? Yep. Right? I mean, keep in mind, in Babylon's got like the wonder of the world, the hanging gardens. In Babylon, you can make a U-turn on the city walls while driving a chariot. Well, Jerusalem city walls were a bunch of rocks piled up by folk. There were no U-turns on chariots. They didn't even know how to ride horses in Jerusalem. They knew how to hook them to a car. They didn't even know how to ride a horse. So, boy, wouldn't you be loath to go back to Haiti having grown up in New York City? It, you know, when they build the second temple, the first thing they do is weep because it didn't look like the image they had in their minds. Well, the image they had in their minds was because they'd been in Babylon where there's money and architects and resources. <laughs> and now they've gone back to Zanzibar and they've built this mud hut. I mean, you know, I, mean, I, I don't want to be like bad, but that's kind of what's happened here. The other thing you said is really interesting. I don't know if you all know this. The first major Christian symbol for Jesus, do you know what it was? It wasn't the cross. It's Christ the Good Shepherd. And look, here, here shows up this image of shepherding, right? And, and Jewish people have always had a shepherding identity. In fact, way back in Genesis, um, when Joseph lives in Egypt, I don't know if you realize this, he's like the second in command of Egypt, but Egyptians won't eat with him because he's a shepherd and they're agrarian. He's a, they think he's gross. So they always have been this shepherding people. And God, curiously enough, says, your shepherds are bad. <laughs> they didn't take care of the sheep. They sacrificed the sheep to feed themselves. A good shepherd actually sacrifices themselves for the sheep. Well, look, when John starts saying that, when Jesus says this in the Gospel of John, he's just quoting Ezekiel. That God will be the shepherd of the people. When Ezekiel says that people have this opportunity to be individually accountable, that would have been shocking. We latch on to that because Americans, we like to think, yeah. I live and die by my own choices, and part of that is silly. We, we, we way over-exaggerate some of that, right? Again, you didn't make an individual choice to be a Christian person. You didn't make that choice. Not entirely. Right? We, we're carried there by folk. And same thing, I, I mean, Obama said this well, whether you like him or not, but hey, that road you used to go to work, you didn't build that road. <laughs> I mean, that's what he said. We, we, we rely on each other more than we'd like to admit, right? And if that road weren't there, you'd have to drive through Webster, which would be terrible. 
You know, <laughs> it would be dreadful. Um, and, and, and this is an interesting thing to think about, right? So, so actually, people had a much stronger, and you see this in the Middle Ages, you can see it in Hinduism. It's called the great chain of being. Everybody has their place in this really hierarchalized society, and you can't really move much out of that place, right? Because it's, it's the fabric of society. Now, we like to think that the great chain of being doesn't really happen. So anybody, the American dream, right, is you can make it anywhere. And, and there are times when that happens. But again, I would put to you that if you're born into a family that is at or below the poverty line, your chance is much lower than somebody who's born in the highest tax bracket. I hope that's not controversial that I'm saying this. No, it's all possible. And this is one of the few countries in which I do think it's possible. But it's not like a child born in inner city Chicago to a teenage mother with no father really has the same kind of accountability as somebody born in Kennebunkport, Maine. I mean, do you think... And, and that, I think, is this interesting thing. If we say, well, they both are equally accountable for every choice they make, it's silly of us. Now, I mean, you know, it's really silly of us. I mean, when your mother can't read and you learn how to read, great on you because you've overcome a natural impediment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so if we hook on this too strong, oh, it's all individual accountability, it can really take us away, I, I'm afraid, from being compassionate and empathetic, yes. and honestly, from the justice that God is interested in. So uh, part of it, I, and I want to put this to you in a, strange, in a strange way, is we also have this very strange American approach to sin and what God's interested in, I think. So if it's okay, um, I'm going to tell you in the Bible there's a huge difference between this and that. This is when I tell a lie, or I steal, or I have a lustful thought in my head. This is distorted relationship period from which all of those things come. So if I could put this into a health analogy, um, if I'm really worried about this, I'm taking cough drops when I really have pneumonia. Does does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Now Jesus... When the power of sin has been defeated, it's not that. It's not that. It's this. Big power with a capital S. Well, it's, it's the, it's maybe as a small sin individual, the big sin is collective? Um, maybe, maybe. I think it's harder to say than that. I think the big yeah. sin has to do, and maybe this is okay to, to give you a weird analogy, um, when my daughter was born, I carried her around in a baby Bjorn all the time. So much so that she would, it was easier for her to take a nap in the Bjorn than if I put her in the crib. And it, poor thing, it looked like her neck was broken and she'd just lay like this. But if I stopped walking, she'd wake up. So yeah. you better believe I wore that Bjorn all the time. And uh, it's funny what we do. And after two years of wearing that, my posture was not great because it was pulling like this all the time. Now, I had this great idea that I was going to fix my posture by thinking about it. 
But you know, you actually can't fix your posture by thinking about it because the moment you stop thinking about it, you go back. The way you fix your posture is by doing these exercises that strengthen and, and naturally pull things kind of back where they need to be. And it can take a really long time. And what's interesting is they may not even be hard. It may be that you just have to do them over and over and over and over again. So same with a capital S is about us having bad posture. <laughs> so in the Catholic Church, the fact that we can go, we go to confession, and when I was a little kid, I grew up going every Friday, and, and so all those little sins that, you know, you'd had to, you told how many times, and we sort yes. of counted it roughly, and um, um, I, I don't know, maybe it's just, for me, um, as a kid, it helped need to stay in line, so to speak. Uh, this is why I think, and this is where I wanted to go too, is because I think sometimes we think I can't see. Oh, I can't. that part of what God is most interested in is our obedience. Mm -hmm. And I want to suggest to you, I think that must be completely wrong. Okay. <laughs> because if the relationship God has with us is always predicated on our obedience, it's a one-way relationship. Yes. Yes. I don't know if you thought about this. Yeah. I had this idea this morning, so I haven't quite congealed with it. But for most of my Christian life, God has just wanted me to obey. And when I disobey, I'm being obedient. But you know, there's this other thoughts, like there's this African proverb that says, God created us because God thought we would enjoy it. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? And there's this other idea that prayer is when we talk to God because God is actually interested in us. Well, now listen, if God's only interested in our obedience, then, then dialogue is of no interest to God. What about the thought that God is interested more in our heart, our love for Him, and out of that love for Him, that adoration comes a desire to be obedient. See, and this, I think, is a really interesting idea. Uh, I just want us to step outside of this mold that we've been, I think, printed into, which takes, takes a little bit of thought. I mean, imagine that, like, heaven or eternity is where God enjoys us forever. Where God enjoys us forever. That's a very different picture from something we earn by following the rules so that we can enjoy it forever. <laughs> and maybe we have to some, end up somewhere in the middle, but I don't know if we can get to the middle when we start here. I think to get to the middle, we have to think about what God's actually interested in. And we usually rest in obey, 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 instead of God is delighted with us? Well, how could God be delighted with somebody who doesn't obey? Because God wants a mutual relationship. Boy, that's, that's, really, that's really different thinking for me. Because sometimes we look at ourselves and say, well, there's nothing God could enjoy about this because I'm barely doing what I'm supposed to do. And, and that's what I want to suggest, that this might actually lead us there. <laughs> it, 
you know, if you, is, is, is obeying a, um, doing something that you know or believe is right, um, or is it, oh gosh, I had a good thought, and it's, just, it's escaping me right now. Um, or is there any joy in obeying uh, other think, than non-guilt? I want to say there might be, but I think maybe a bit of concept is about honoring. Because yeah. yeah. um, obedience <coughs> is about I do or else, you're greater than me. Honoring is about some kind of mutuality. I mean, listen, there's things my wife wants me to do that I don't really want to do. <laughs> um, and, and sometimes I do them because I don't want to be nagged. Boy, if that's the relationship we had, I'm going to be honest, I could live in that relationship for the rest of my life, but I wouldn't freely choose that one. I can do it. Because I have premiums around stuff like that. But you know, there's other times where I do things I don't naturally want to do. In fact, I do things I think are silly, but so that I can honor my wife. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and to be honest with yeah. you, when, I'm, when I do it just because I don't want to be nagged, I, it leads me into bitterness and separation. Is there, there, is there, do you get joy in honor? Yes, you get no joy in obedience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because obedience is always based in threat. It's always based in threat. And honor is based in joy. And to, to me, because I brought up the idea of confession and all that, as I, as I mature, you, I just, you know, gradually really begin to see a bigger world and the fact that honoring and that um, be, being a good person would doing the right thing um, was an honorable way of living. Mm-hmm. It was not so much about obedience, because then it becomes like a prison that, that the word obedience is incarcerating. Yeah, and I think actually here's this really interesting thought about it, and this is why I wanted to talk about posture and exercises a little bit, is that if we, in an obedience mentality, we have to confess so God will forgive us. In an honor mentality, we confess because it helps us pull our posture back. Confession is for us, not for God. And marriage vows no longer have obey. Marriage vows no longer have obey because, and I think this is actually really good thinking, well, I shouldn't say because. To me, in the evolution of marriage, women are increasingly no longer property. Right, right. I mean, it just, that just flew out of my mouth. No, it's good. It's good. But it's true. It does kind of relate to me. And I know this is silly. Like, we're spinning wheels on a very small linguistic difference, but I hope they lead us into a much bigger reality. It's, it's, and I think I've said did this before here. When we, and the Catholic, the Catholic Church, when they turned the altar around so we could see what the priest was, was doing, and mm-hmm. I could see that. And I know that happened in other churches also. Mm-hmm. That made a huge difference because it wasn't something private or in, in high, in, and they were, were taught about what it meant and what was being said, and you had the books, and they were in English and Spanish, and so that anyone who came into my church in yes. South Texas could read them and understand what was happening. Yes. It made a, it was huge opening of, of 
change. It's, I don't know. It's, just... it's at least an invitation to do so, oh, right? Yeah. It's an invitation. Um, are we spinning? Am I overspinning our wheels on these big themes? This is a tough one. I actually could park on this for a long time because I don't, I don't know how to live into it. I'm just going to be honest with you. Normally, I think God is fundamentally disappointed with me. And I can't imagine what God would fundamentally enjoy about me because I know how disobedient I am. I know whenever I do something good, I could have done more. I know that because I've been hardwired to obey. And obedience might be how it starts, but I think if it doesn't go to honor, we're still like two-year-olds in our faith, in our marriage, in our friendships. And it is always this great question when we think about commandment number five, how do you honor your parents? I decided a long time ago that if I obeyed my parents, I would not be myself. I actually had to disobey them to honor them. That's interesting, isn't it? I had to disobey them to honor them. Uh, you know, my, my father did something once. Um, my mother, my sister and I were divorced and remarried. And my mother had this reaction about, as, a, as mothers would, oh my God, we're Catholic, none of my boys have been yes. divorced. My, our two daughters have been divorced. I just can't see them coming in with some other man. And my dad said, and she told me, he, he said, we never, ever shut our doors to our children. Yeah, you, that the doors That's how you honor your children then, right? That's this yeah. really interesting thing. And sometimes I think we shut our doors to our children because we think that's how we teach them, right? right? But when our relationship is at stake, yes. the lesson is yes. <laughs> obey not honor. Now, there are ways we shut our doors to our kids. Like, hey, you cannot live with me in our house again. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I do care about you, and I will support you in the following ways. Yes. And our kid can take that as, hey, obedience, they don't really care. We can't always control that, right? I mean, we, we, we make complicated decisions about whether we enable people or not, and enabling is not really loving them. And it's hard. It's all hard stuff. And honor, I think, is much harder to figure out than obedience because honoring is amorphous. And obedience is black and white. Mm -hmm. Yes. How do we identify honor? Well, boy, I think we do it through this, my least favorite word in the church, discernment. I hate discernment. I like to make decisions. And how do we discern? God help me. I'm not a spiritual director. This is not my thing, you know. How about we discern for a while? Let's just make a decision. That's what, that's what I want to do. But I do think that properly, and to be honest, discernment is used like a club on people. Like, hey, pastor, I really want to do this ministry. Mm, how about you discern that for a while? Which is a really way of saying, like, I don't know about you. It can be clubbing. But I do think there's an interesting thing about, hey, like, we really do need to figure out if this is the voice of ambition or anxiety or obedience or if this is your authentic self and you're, are you following joy or are you following obedience? Because those are different things to follow. 
And, you know, I, if it's okay to return to the story here, right, we can hear that story about the dry bones as being some kind of metaphor for heaven when we die. But we, we could also hear that story really as a way of being renewed as a community. And we don't always get this, but the word spirit, it actually just means moving air. It doesn't mean like a ghost or a soul essence. It means moving air, most often wind or breath. So how curious, right, that a holy moving wind, as in an extraordinary one, a holy one, blows over these reanimated corpses and they live again. That's like the gift of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> where God goes, and all of a sudden these dead things have new life. I mean, that's a resurrection story. Right? It's, it's a second wind. I wish I could get a second wind. I don't always get a run. Uh, it takes like seven or eight miles before you get it. That's the interesting thing, right? You don't get a second wind before you start going. You, you get it after you've been going and you hit this wall of exhaustion. And boy, you can't always even predict it as a runner or an athlete or like in your spiritual journey. But essentially, there's this interesting thing that the Holy Spirit is not some gift of a ghost. It's, it's like a reinvigorating way of being in the world. It's like a, when you change from breathing in obedience and shame and reward to honor and grace, which I'm struggling to do. I'm, I'm really struggling to get that second wind in my spiritual journey. But we could read it as that dry bones bit could be us, and it doesn't necessarily mean we prosper and America conquers the world and our taxes go down 20%. I mean, you know, that's, I would tell you, I think the Bible's not interested in any of that stuff. I think it's interested in, in our way of being, in, in our posture in the world. <laughs> and I think our relationship with God. All of it's predicated on that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, again, there's this great diagram of this triangle the closer we get to God, the closer we must get to ourself and to others. And you get closer to God through through other people, other relationships with other people. I, I think. Um, you know the day that when I brought all those oranges here, mm -hmm. okay, I took them to the to the Christ Hall, mm -hmm. and and I had more oranges. I had so many oranges. I had this huge bag of oranges, and I think Samuel Gladden took a bag. But the the gentleman, the black gentleman, Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. Yeah. works there. Okay, at the at the end, we, I came back. Everybody was gone, and uh, the oranges were there. And I thought, what am I going to do with these oranges? And Tommy said, did, did you raise? Did you plant the tree? And I said, yes. And and they they your it's your tree. You didn't go to a grocery store. I said, no, I didn't go to. He said, my kids in my neighborhood walk the streets. They would love. To have the oranges, mm. it was the sweetest. And out, of, you know, I've never even had a conversation with him, but he asked, "You planted the tree, mm. you harvested the oranges, you picked them and brought them in here, and I'm taking them." And so I could just see in in, in inner city schools that have you know black kids playing on, out in the street, yeah. and him out there handing out oranges. Yeah. That came from my well, and that kind of matches Ezekiel's vision of this other thing in the temple, which is never going to be in the temple, which is the river of life, right? Yeah. Um, 
Do you notice that? It flows into the Dead Sea and now there's life in the Dead Sea. Yeah. And of course, if we take that literally, we failed. Oh my gosh, if we failed, this is an image about what worship does. It brings life to places where there never could be any. And our posture in the world affects whether that happens or not. I, mean, I think this is yeah. where it's all connected, right? Yeah. Do you notice that, he, that there's, Ezekiel reapportions the land? among not the two tribes, but among the 12. And 10 of them are gone. No one knows what happened to any of them. And so this is like this magical restoration where everybody has a place. It's this sort of you know thing we see in the Bible over and over again is not like sin and fall and heaven. It's about returning home. It, 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 seems, it, it, it seems that there is the first part of these EQ, and then the second part, and they don't kind of bear any relationship to each other. I might be able to help. Um, so I don't know if anybody has ever tried their hand at masonry. <laughs> if you've ever done this, um, boy, it's really difficult to work with. Not only are bricks heavy, but you know, using that trowel, I could not figure out how to use the trowel. I started using my hands because I could scoop it and spread it or whatever. You know, it'll destroy your hands, touching cement, it's dreadful, and you can't quite do it right with gloves on. Well, it turns out in masonry what, what, what happens is if you start building a course and you get to the end and you realize it's not quite level, what you have to do is put on more masonry. <laughs> And uh, boy, by the time you put on that second row, it might be odd in the other bit, right? It turns out masonry is not very strong. We like to think it is, but it's really, really weak. It's not watertight. Um, it cr it's the first thing that cracks. So imagine building a building that's all the levels are just janky. <laughs> well, if you want to fix that and do it right, you have to knock it down. So, there's a way in which deconstruction can be for our sake, not our punishment. And I, and I want to suggest, I think that's probably a healthy way to, to, to read this, is, again, it has to do with the same image of like a refiner's fire. You, it, it's probably not great to think about burning up all that dross, but the goal is to pull out the purity. Not to punish it, but to purify it. Um, so I think that might be one way to read it. And, and if we read it that way, right, then as God as a pedagogue or a tutor or a disciplinarian does not punish us, but tries to remediate us, which requires us suffering the destruction of structures that have already been destroying us. They have to reshape you to obey. And they have to reshape you so you'll kill another person because left to your own devices, you'll, you'll pretend to shoot them and you'll aim the other way. So you, you've got to do that to be efficient. I mean, uh, boy, that can, that can go real ugly, but I mean, I think this is, this is part of the, the, the thing here. I think that might be why Paul uses these metaphors, we'll read this later, about dying. Because, boy, we rely on some of those things so much that when you want to take them away, it feels like we're dying. It's really hard to lose elements of our faith we've built on. Even if they were not good to build on, we've built on them so long that to take them away is like, oh my God, you're killing God. 
That's how it feels. Which is why death and resurrection and new life, I think, factor so much in this. I mean, if you have an obedience mentality and you want to switch it to honor, you're not going to do that in a moment. (laughs) You're going to have to knock down years of building relationships around obedience. Well, when my son got out of the military after 25 years, he had a terrible time. And the one where we lived in Florida, they built this housing area after uh, Vietnam, and it was called Veterans Village. Hated the name. But I worked in the emergency room, and I saw more spouse abuse in the ER with that group because they no longer had somebody telling them what to do. Yeah. You know, they called the military intellect. My son was perfectly happy with saying, now you go over there and you, you know, breathe all that burning air, you know, save the world. Okay, I'll do it. You know, you see dead people around you and you, they have to stay there because there's mines underneath them. And, but... That was okay, but when he got to where he was supposed to think for himself and make his decisions, it took him a while, you know, yeah. because there was nobody to tell him, I want you at such and such a place at 8 o'clock in the morning. And, and this is what you're going to wear. Yeah. Well, and beyond that, I think you know, this is a really interesting thing to think that the military relies on us playing into adrenaline and cortisol in our brain. Those are those fight-flight-freeze connections. And then people come back, and they've been living in their reptilian brain for a year, and now we want them all of a sudden to be mammals. But we said, you must be reptiles. You must. Uh, And so this is where we've come up with this concept of moral injury and what it's like then to, to be that person and how is it that we reacclimate socially and, uh, you know, it's really interesting. The Bishop of Texas said, like, offhandedly two or three years ago, he was just talking, and he said, you know, everybody knows it's wrong to kill. Everybody knows that. But we tell our soldiers, kill, and you did your job. And that's why we will always need chaplains. I mean, it was just really interesting. I mean, really, it was very, very insightful to think through this, this uh, switching uh, programming. And um, I, I don't... I think it's a good analogy to think through, like this is part of the switching we're being asked to do um, um, spiritually. Look how the good shepherd um, doesn't just take care of the sheep, but looks for the lost ones. Again, Luke didn't make that up. So you imagine God the shepherd is not just saying, good job obeying me, you good sheep, but, well, running out looking for the lost ones because for whatever reason, God enjoys them. And this is really an interesting thing for us to grow into is God doesn't look for the lost sheep to enforce obedience. God looks for the lost sheep because God enjoys them. That's just such a different spiritual image for me. I think it's right, but uh, that didn't mean I'm rightfully appropriating it because I usually think when somebody's lost they should stop being lost (laughs) right we all got maps and look it's over here (laughs) I'm a good map reader so so I just you know it's really this is really tough for me 
but but you see that this is part, I think, of, of, of his grand vision is God is going to give us a new heart. Don't think like emotional center. That's, that's the center of your will. And a new spirit. A new way of breathing. I mean, something like that is so fin- fundamental. It's like breathing. Well, one thing I found interesting when you talk about your parents, uh, my mother was, she used to look at me sometime and say, you know, I will always love you, but I don't like you right now. (laughs) And I thought, oh, I told my kids the same thing. And I was... When my first grandchild was born, I heard my son say, and when we went to visit him, you know, I'll always love you, but I don't like the way you're acting. Yeah. And then he stopped and he said, you're standing right behind me, aren't you? <laughs> he said, God, I now I understand what you meant. Yeah. And with my mother, you know, when I got to be teenage, where sometimes you want to do things that aren't quite what you should be doing, I would say, well, can I go? And my mother would say, you do what you think is right. Yeah. No, tell me, yes yeah. or no. Can't do you know, you, you said something so interesting that connects with the reading we had on Sunday, Blessed are the poor, for they will be filled. You know, and I think a lot of times in our obedience mindset, we like people because they validate us. Mm. Uh, which means we're full all the time of ourselves. And if we make room for other people to enjoy them as they are, uh, I think that's what Jesus has in mind. So blessed are people who make room for others, who are able to enjoy them, whether they obey or not, or have your same politics or not, or enjoy the same restaurants you do or not. If you make room for other people, you'll actually, oddly enough, that will fill you. If you don't, if you're already full of yourself, and if your opinions and your obedience mentality, you'll always be hungry. Well, it's like if you want a friend, you have to be a friend. Yeah, it's, it's true. And you know, there's an interesting thing with, parent, with parents and spouses, right, is enjoying our kids for who they are yes. instead of making them be who we expected them to be. And this can be fine lines, <laughs> and that's the mystery of marriage <laughs> and parenthood. Well, look, next week we'll read some beautiful verses in Isaiah. We'll read Second Isaiah just in time for Advent. It's really quite beautiful. Um, so see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.